0: The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: You're listening to Very Loose Women.
2: Good evening and welcome to Verily Women. you're currently listening to Fists Up by the Blow, specially chosen to introduce us to tonight's show on fossil fuel divestment campaigning, or just campaigning more generally. Um, anyway, my name is Leonore. I'm Emma and we've got a special
3: guest today. I'm Julia. Um, Hi Julia. Thanks and, for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you.
2: you for coming on. So Julia, you were part of uh, the Fossil Free SOAS campaign, um, so thanks a lot for speaking about that on air tonight. We'll also be hearing from a Harvard Law student who has filed a lawsuit against her university in an effort to get it to divest. So,
3: Emma, I think you wanted to start with something. Sure, Um, what do you mean when you talk about divestment? Um, so divestment is um, calling upon uh, institutions, so it could be universities, pension funds, uh, churches, religious institutions, to divest, so uh, remove their investments from, uh, because they often have portfolios um, that they use to make more money to run the university or to pay for people's pensions. So to remove, uh, to take shares in fossil fuel companies, uh, oil and gas and coal companies um, out of their funds out
1: of their investment funds and can you give any specific examples of like times in the past maybe not fossil fuels specifically that it's been successful divestment um, campaigns
3: so the, the the sort of uh the model divestment campaign on which future ones have been based uh was a series of campaigns against um apartheid in the 1980s uh where a number of um u.s universities including the university of california and a couple of other really big ones uh, divested from South African companies. And this is sort of popularly acknowledged to have made um, a significant impact on the sort of international delegitimization of the apartheid regime and its eventual collapse. So divestment campaigning
2: is a huge movement. We know that uh, I think I think over a thousand local campaigns worldwide with 181 institutions, over 656 individuals, I was told this weekend, divested in 2014, including the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. So it's a huge um, global movement but you've been interested in campaigning or like not campaigning but you've been interested in climate change for a lot longer than that um, So. What was that hilarious story that you, that I don't <laughs> know sure yet?
1: <laughs> yeah, what, How did you first get into caring about the environment or being incredibly worried about the environment? Earlier? Yes, I think I think worried is the right word. Um, well, I spent
3: a lot of time um, outdoors in the mountains as a kid, so I guess I can thank my my parents for that. But um, in particular, I remember a, a formative, uh, terrifying experience when I was thirteen, when we were asked to just find uh, <laughs> so it's quite vague instruction a picture about science. Uh, um, and share it with the class. And the one that I found, um, it, I think this was also the first time I, I learned about global environmental problems, the first time I used the internet and the first time I used a color printer. So it was quite a formative moment. But I, I found a photo um, of the ozone, the hole in the ozone layer. And um, it was one of those kind of thermal photos. So you could see this big purple hole over Australia. And I, I just found it terrifying. I just, I still remember it. And I think from then on, um, I that's when I kind of became aware of these uh huge kind of um threats to human survival on earth and um i think it's something that's been emotionally compelling to me
1: ever since um yeah that must have been a big moment because i can't remember the first time i used a color printer <laughs> do you guys anyone in the studio no yeah. i think they were a real letdown when we were growing up <laughs> well not for julia no and so how did you like um move from that kind of Terrifying fear that you had about those in there. Um, How did you move from that into campaigning? At what point did you start campaigning? Um, I think the first time I got involved in. Well, I remember like several
3: like halfway aborted attempts to introduce recycling schemes at most most schools I've gone to. But um, I think the first time I got involved in campaigning was when I was at university. When I went on a few climate protests, Um, I went to a few climate camps, Um, and yeah, that kind of that was the first time I got involved in campaigning. And I. and I remember, I, I remember going to a few and feeling this sense of sort of um, powerlessness, futility? and oh. that they—well, yeah, futility is maybe too strong of a word—but I, I didn't see the connection between the action I was taking and the change that needed to happen. And so, I, I then—but um, my my concern about the environment remained. So I then, uh, I then started studying environmental law because I, I thought um you know what really needs to happen here is is laws um regulations which which i still definitely believe to be the case um and so if i become a lawyer then i can get you know right to the to the belly of the beast and uh, <laughs> and um and get involved in in writing and and um pushing for those laws myself um and then when i did get to the to the belly of the beast um so i i worked for a bit um within the the un uh, climate change convention I realized that actually what was going on was a lot of slightly pushing deck chairs around on the Titanic because there wasn't enough political will and and you could you could be as good at drafting climate change legislation as you want and there's more more than enough people who are capable of doing that um what's really lacking is the political will and actually that comes a lot from campaigning and so that kind of brought me full circle back to campaigning and um yeah so I've that's that's how I got involved in, in fossil fuel divestment as well
0: and yeah go ahead and with regards to divestment it's it's a different style of campaign to some of the other types of kind of um say like public activism isn't it so the way that people actually express their beliefs in the type of um, work that you're doing it's not necessarily as much of maybe a publicity stunt or i don't know how how does how do you think it's different from things that you've done in the past Well, I think I actually think it is a publicity stunt. I think Mm -hmm. it's totally a publicity stunt. But I
3: think because because the aim, I mean, it's um, there's kind of frequently frequently a misconception that fossil fuel divestment is about pulling the rug um, out from underneath the fossil fuel companies in financial terms, you know, taking their money away. But uh, in in like proportional terms, the amount of money that you know public institutions or universities have in fossil fuels is tiny most fossil fuel shares are owned by states actually state-owned companies um and actually the point is to publicly sort of shame and delegitimize fossil fuel companies and thereby uh, reduce the impact that they have on our political institutions um so it is a publicity stunt but i think the way that it um achieves the publicity is maybe a bit different and i think um that's possibly what attracted me and i think quite a lot of sort of first time climate campaigners to divestment is that it provides a, a way of campaigning that's a bit more about sort of um direct engagement with decision makers and um you know if you've got a small relatively small institution like a university or a local council which is smaller than a national government um you could maybe you know go directly talk to those decision makers sit in a room with them try to convince them of your case and um it's, it's a change that's achievable and um, makes use of skills that uh, sort of more like demonstrations and protests um, don't. So like skills of engagement, report writing, like research, um, these kind of things. So I think one thing that's been really exciting about the divestment movement is that a lot of people have got involved that aren't necessarily um, traditional activists.
0: Yeah.
2: So you set up and led the the Fossil Free SOAS campaign. Um how did that occur to you to for for that to happen? How, like, how did it start? Yeah, how did it start? And how did you get it going?
3: Um so it it, it started because I went to um this amazing event um that happened in I think October twenty thirteen, um, which was Uh, It was I think it was it was basically to launch the fossil fuel divestment campaign in the UK, which was still in its infancy. Um, And they were um, Greenpeace and and a few and 350.org and a few other organizations were doing a tour, um, I think, of the world and also the UK. um, Screening this amazing film called Do the Math, uh, which I would highly recommend and bringing some of the speakers like Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein um, to talk about the divestment, the fossil fuel divestment campaign and why it was important for climate change. Um, so so I, I think in seeing this film um, and particularly in seeing Bill McKibben speak, um, it was just really, for, for me, it was the first time. I mean, climate change has been something that I've been incredibly concerned about um, for most of my life and has motivated a lot of my career and life decisions. Um, but, and, and I work for an environmental NGO in, in a slightly different um, field. Um, But this was the first time that I'd really seen a campaign um, presented to me that um, seemed like it might make a difference, that it might be something that I could achieve and that it might make a difference um, in terms of climate change. And I think, um, yeah, it was I mean, the film was very powerful. It's really, you know, motivating, but not in a depressing way. It, it, It shows the scale of the problem, but then says, here's something that you could do about it. And I think. The fact that divestment is something that's um, carried out at, like I said, relatively small institutions like universities, pension funds, local authorities, uh, you really have the feeling that I, as an individual person, as a first-time campaigner, really, I'd, you know, I'd never started a campaign before, I could maybe do this. And this would, the sort of political delegitimization effect of divestment, if a lot of these universities did it we know it worked before with apartheid, this could actually be something that might help tip the balance on, on climate change. So I kind of went home pretty much straight from that event, um, found out there was no campaign at SOAS, and then thought, well, I guess I should start it then. And um, so, yeah, that's that's how it began. And how did it go from this idea to a successful movement? Um, well, it was really, I mean, it was really quite an amazing, uh, quite like quite moving process actually, because it really just started with me. It was, I was the only person. Um, and so when it was successful at the end, it was really an amazing experience to feel like it went from having this idea in my head, watching a film uh, to being something that actually happened and was getting loads of media coverage and, um, made a difference in the way that I was inspired to, to do in the film. Um, and so it really started, I mean, uh, it, the first step was just to try to get some other people involved because I, I couldn't do it by myself. So um, I started by getting my housemate involved and then just kind of tried to win people over one by one at SOAS. Um, you said
2: that you were buying people drinks. Yeah, I was. A bit of bribery? I was, yeah,
3: maybe bribery or like uh, appealing to people's love for booze. But um, yeah, I, I would kind of uh, approach people at environmental, environment related events or by doing um, petition gathering on campus. And if I could see they were a bit interested, I'd try to befriend them and take them for a drink and convince them that it was important. And so I sort of gradually, one by one, uh, got people through, worked my yeah. way through the, the possible campaigners. And there, there were quite a few people involved who'd never done environmental campaigning before. So that was really, really great. And I think they'll do it that as a really lifelong thing. That really
0: surprises me because for anyone who's listening who doesn't know much about SOAS, mm-hmm. SOAS... So us- is the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is part of the University of London. And it's like the activist hotbed of like the whole of the UK's kind of student scene. And it's like, for me, like it seems to be the place where there's the most kind of campaigns and the most passionate people. So in a way, like, it doesn't amaze me that you've done this because obviously you're fantastic. But like, I'm really surprised that there wasn't like a kind of immediate groundswell of people kind of getting behind and that you kind of had to, Put that real like rallying effort in to get people behind you, yeah, I, it surprised
3: me as well i I but what I came to realize through the course of the campaign is like I think so students are quite concerned there's some tr- really traditional causes that they're concerned about, and they tend to be more sort of like civil and political issues um mm. like I would say the big ones are Israel. Um, and stop the anti-war activism, and mm-hmm. then anti-cuts activism yeah. are the main kind of. And those those have us. And and um, justice for cleaners is another big one. Those have sort of long. They they have a slightly longer history. Like workers' rights campaigning is a very traditional left issue that has a lot of big institutions yeah. behind it, and a lot of um, a history of student student participation. You know, same with anti-cuts and anti-student fees. And I. I it I really found that students were although at soas everybody at soas was passively supportive I mean nobody was against it, but it wasn't something that was grabbing people as much as mm. as maybe sort of pro palestine activism and there wasn't there weren't as many communities around it that existed already um soas has recently also the other thing is soas hasn't traditionally had many courses on the environment um it does courses a lot of language um culture courses on africa and mm. asia so but it's recently introduced a number of courses on the environment new courses and a lot of the people involved in the campaign came from these courses so okay, i
4: think
1: that's amazing. also yeah mm-hmm. so once you had all these people behind you either through bribery or some sort of persuasion skills that <laughs> we won't go into um what did you do with all those people how did you get the the campaign actually rolling um you...
3: well it actually um the campaign kind of in a way we sort of bypassed the more public um student mobilization stuff because we managed to get all of it done mostly just by talking to management so one of my regrets for the campaign was that we didn't use it more as an opportunity to build a movement because I think it's a problem that there's not more sort of environmental activism at SOAS and it would have been nice to use that as an opportunity but we actually moved quite quickly um, just by talking to sort of we started by talking to the finance department um, and then it, it went quite quickly from there in terms of moving up to talk to the relevant decision makers we found that SOAS is generally quite receptive so we didn't really ever need to put pressure on them by doing demonstrations outside. We could do most of it just by talking to them directly.
1: So it doesn't sound like it was necessarily easy, but definitely like it was an efficient campaign and kind of you went through a stage and it went really well. Was, was there ever a point where you thought this isn't gonna work and it's all going wrong and it will never happen?
3: There was one I would say our, our lowest point uh, was we we everything was going really well. We had the principal on board, we had quite a lot of high-up people on board. And we we sort of had this. Oh, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. And then almost at the last minute, in the eleventh hour, um, the um, so what were they? The development office or the fundraising office um, got uh, got wind of what was going on, and they they weren't happy. Um, predictably, you know, they saw that divesting from fossil fuels or taking a moral stance against fossil fuels might have an impact on where saus could then accept money from. So they were quite against it, and um, and we. We were very concerned about that um, they spoke out quite strongly against it um but we sort of tried to respond to all their concerns and um in particular like gave them some options of how they could deal with the donations issue and in the end uh, they d- it didn't end up um, being an obstacle and we man- they they even said they supported it in the end, so we managed to win them over, which was very rewarding <laughs> so last question
2: before we go on to listen to the case of um uh, in Harvard um it's more around like why do you think this campaign was successful when so many other ones have failed um and at the at the event I went to this weekend there was someone from the SOAS campaign who was saying that they used arguments like like PR and things like that like what like why did this work and other one and other ones didn't
3: I think I mean I think the thing with divestment and and climate change is actually a lot I mean most people believe in well most people in decision making positions think climate change is an issue i think most people are very concerned about climate change and the issue is that we don't really know what to do about it and i think if you if you give people a way that they can you know contribute to solving climate change i think a lot of people are quite eager to do it um, and we had a lot of support from quite high up at the university like um active support even the principal of well ex principal of soas um Has recently, after the end of the campaign, wrote a letter to the Times, um, you know, saying, calling on other universities to divest, which he did of his own personal volition. So, I think, um, I think one of the keys to success is that there was there was just quite widespread quite widespread support within the institution, and I think we gained a lot from we put a lot of effort into finding out the way the internal sort of decision making politics worked at SOAS and trying to play that and um, do all this internal lobbying, and I think. We were quite patient with that and didn't, you know, we we sort of accepted that some of this would take a bit of time and there'd be a bit of bureaucratic How long did back it take? and forth. And it took um, it took about a year and a half in okay. total. But there were some times when we felt like maybe they were playing us, and but we thought, you know, better to stick with it. And because if we can get it done internally, then that's the best way. And that paid off. So I would say, yeah, a sort of internal strategy um, and really knowing the issues well and um, being taken seriously was was a big part of it.
1: Sorry, just a really quick question. Is there like any scope for you to then go into other universities and kind of have you been kind of spreading your story of how you've done it so other people can learn from that?
3: Yeah, I um, mean, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of contacts between the different London universities um, and we've often helped each other at, at each other's actions. Uh, people on Planet um, is a network of um, different, uh, different university um, environmental campaigning groups and that's been really key in terms of fostering knowledge sharing. Um, But yeah, we're all very connected via social media and then through periodic divestment meetings. So yeah, we've done a lot of that. Um, So next, I'm gonna
2: play an interview with someone who's had a really different experience of a lot far less receptive universities as so as. So here's Kelsey. Uh,
4: My name is Kelsey Skaggs. I'm a law student at Harvard Law School. And I'm part of the divestment campaign at Harvard and one of three law students who are leading a litigation effort to compel the university to divest. We filed the lawsuit last fall, and there are two separate legal grounds for our claim. The first is, essentially, that uh, the Harvard Corporation is violating their charitable obligations by investing in fossil fuels. So we are students who are the beneficiaries of the public charity um, and of the endowment that the Harvard Corporation manages. And the founding documents of Harvard say that they have to manage the endowment to promote the advancement and education of the youth, and also take care of the physical campus, both of those things are threatened by climate change. So that's kind of the more technical count. The other is a tort claim, which means you know private injury. So we bring that claim on behalf of future generations, actually, rather than ourselves as individuals. Um, so we're arguing that basically the climate change harms to which Harvard is contributing through their investments um, harm future generations. That's you know pretty much not up for debate at this point. Um, it's a question, obviously, whether a court would recognize that future generations have the right to bring that sort of thing, or that we have the right to bring it on behalf of them. We filed in the fall, um, and we were met with motions to dismiss, unsurprisingly, um, from the Harvard Corporation and their management, the money management corporation. We had a hearing at the trial court level uh, last February, which was great. We packed the courthouse with divestment supporters. Um, and because our administration has really not even given us, you know, a dialogue about divestment. It was the first time that we were actually able to lay it out and have representatives of Harvard uh, respond publicly. They were, you know, the lawyers they had hired. But still, um, it, was, it was a really great moment for the campaign as a whole. So the trial court judge granted the motion to dismiss, kind of unsurprisingly, given that we're dealing with these new legal issues. We brought the case as students on our own, um, without any representation. It's about our relationship to the university. We want that to be front and center. And also because as young people, it's about our future. And, and also because we, we had done all the work and we felt very strongly that um, we wanted the legal plan to be presented in a certain way. So they've definitely told us, um, you know, when they give many reasons for not divesting, one of them has been because it doesn't make financial sense. Um, We hear that less often now, actually, um, and I think that's for two reasons. One is that we know that these carbon-heavy investments are really not doing that well, and they're definitely not good long-term investments. The other reason is that they actually don't have very much money in fossil fuel. We don't know how much they have in indirect holdings. we can only see direct, but they don't have a lot of money compared to their endowment, which is over $30 billion. They've more switched to the argument um, that it's uh, the endowment isn't a political tool. It definitely wouldn't be, you know, financially catastrophic for for yeah. the university. Um, it's more a question of whether they're going to take a stand or not, especially now because we've been, you know, raising the profile of this issue, um, and of course. You will know, we'll make a statement if they divest, which is, has always been our reason, you know. The divestment movement as a whole isn't about um, financially bankrupting companies so much as it is about morally bankrupting them. There's definitely a larger movement to get law to respond to climate change because right now it really doesn't. Um, and that is the way law evolves, is by people bringing new claims and saying, I'm being harmed by this. This is something that our legal system has to address. And it's happened before, um, after the Industrial Revolution, a lot of new things you could sue for came into being. Um, In the U.S., at least, sexual harassment wasn't really a tort until uh, as recently as the 1970s. Um, So... There's always, there has to be new people or new issues being put forward in law for it to happen. And maybe the first hundred times you'll lose. Um, but eventually it'll become part of the law. And so I think it can be very powerful just to put forward these new arguments and new ideas and say, this is happening. The legal system needs to respond to it. Um, and that that's one thing. Um, you know, Future generations are not recognized as a party who can sue in U.S. law. Um, but one of the reasons that we put it that forward is because we think it's really important that law start adapting to that. Um, And I think that lawyers have an important role to play in making sure that the implementation of climate change solutions is done in a way that's just and inclusive. I'd be really happy to see other campaigns using law as a tool. I think there's a lot of potential for it to be um, a powerful thing that campaigns do alongside other forms of action.
2: So that was um, Kelsey Skaggs. She's part of, um, and she's leading this lawsuit um, against Harvard. Um, and I just, I was totally amazed by what she was telling me um, because the thought had genuinely not occurred to me that, that this could be a, a significant legal issue. And I also just wanted to add before we go on that all of the legal costs um, incurred by the suit, like filing a claim, were successfully crowdfunded and... Um, so people have really come together uh, with her with um, Divest Harvard on this issue. So Julia, what what have you heard about Divest Harvard and what are your thoughts on legal action?
3: Well, I mean I think Divest Harvard are an incredibly inspiring campaign. Um they they've done something that we never had to do, which is persist through years and years and years of total silence and lack of engagement from the administration. Um, which how you maintain your motivation and uh energy to keep doing the huge amount of work that they've done in that situation is it was incredibly inspiring. Um, so I think in that context, I think the legal case um, is, a, is a brilliant tactic. I think, um, like she said, it enables them for the first time to actually engage, well, somewhat directly with the university and to kind of have a a public forum for um for for making the case um i think i mean from the sounds of it um the likelihood of the legal com- claim succeeding is fairly low because these is quite um experimental the theory that they're advancing but i think um, I think it can be a way of sort of raising and legitimising an issue, um, and and sort of um, bringing more negative publicity against a university um, that that can be really useful in a campaign. So I think it's I think it's really brilliant.
2: And um, more broadly, um, in terms of legislation and um, fossil fuel, not even divestment, but climate, climate change in general, um, what what single piece of legislation would you
3: think would be most effective? Well, I think um well it's it's hard to really say sync I think it has to be a package of things, but I think having a, a serious carbon tax um, accompanied by measures to ensure that's not passed on to um, to consumers who can't afford to pay more for their power, um, and that the the profits from those tax be put put into seriously ramping up investment in um in renewables development would probably be the single thing i guess that i would say but i think there's a, there's a lot of different things that need to happen um coal needs to be phased out for one but so <laughs> so um bring it back to um fossil fuel divestment
2: in more general terms um I think everyone can get involved. That's the impression I got from this. So I went to that that workshop this weekend. It was guardianin350 dot org. Uh, Keep it in the ground workshop day, and it was completely free. And they provided free lunch. And everyone knows I get completely won over by that.
1: Um, <laughs> but that's one of the tactics you could have used. Julia. Oh, you yeah. didn't need to free lunch, <laughs> feeding, feeding people.
2: That's what uh, the CU did. Um, but anyway, you've got like local local level. Uh, you've got councils. You've got boroughs. Pension funds. Like what? What do you comedian. think is, is the best way to get involved with this?
3: I think, well, there's loads of campaigns already in London. Um, a lot of the, I know Southwark has got, um, the Southwark local authority has got a campaign, Southwark Council, divest. there's Divest Hackney as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of campaigns in London. If there isn't one um, in your borough, then you can start one. Um, there's also campaigns at churches. Um, if you have a pension, you can also um, get involved in campaigning for your pension to divest um, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways to get involved. Um, also, uh, getting involved in local activism around um, stopping fracking um, and these kind of things. So, yeah. Putting your money in an ethical bank? Yes, putting your money in an ethical bank. Um, I moved my money from uh, NatWest to Co op a few years ago. So, Co op um, doesn't uh, invest your money into fossil fuels. So, that's, that's
0: a way to. There's yeah. a website run by the Move Your Money people and they list um ethical banks building societies and kind of rate them based on different things including like their climate and fossil fuel or lack of investments so you can check that out if you want to find out more
2: and what about these online like online petitions for on like fossil free uh Fossil, yeah, I think it's fossilfree.org. Um, like how how effective is online petition signing? Do you, do you know?
3: Well, I think an, a petition is a good way that you can collect passive support as you carry on with the other activities of your campaign. And I think having a petition, I mean, we had a petition with a, a, about a thousand signatures. We gave it to management. It was it was often mentioned during discussion. So it, it definitely played a part. I think it's a relatively easy way to demonstrate passive support for your campaign from people who might not otherwise have the time to get very involved so i think it's definitely worthwhile and the last point
2: just before we sign off uh so danny packard from 350.org said divestment alone will never create the change we need uh we will never financially bankrupt the fossil fuels industry so what else can everyone do
3: um i think i think well one of the biggest things we can do is engage in national politics and push for Um, push for ramping up investment in renewables and phasing out fossil fuels. And yeah, well done to all the people who are currently campaigning against fracking in various places in the UK. And we need to push the current government uh, not to phase out subsidies for wind, uh, remove the power of communities to object to fracking. There's a lot that can be done in the UK. So I would encourage everybody to get involved, even if you haven't before. I never had before and it was a brilliant experience. So yeah. Thanks so much, Julia, for coming on. And uh,
1: congratulations on the success of your yeah, campaign. Well, it's uh, amazing. Yes, thank you. We won. It is the other oh, thing okay. fun thing. Yeah, a fun thing. Au
2: revoir, Simone.
0: This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24 7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not for profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.